Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to carvana it doesn't get any better than this your favorite seat's the best spot in the house make it even better by entering your license plate or vin and getting a real offer in minutes there really is no place like home and speaking of home carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 586 with my guest, Limey. I am Paul Gilmartin. I don't know why I said the name Paul like that. My name is Paul Gilmartin, and uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Uh, It's a place where you can go, wow, I'm not that crazy, and feel a little bit of relief. Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice to have a place where for an hour and a half, you're like... I'm not the biggest piece of shit in the room. Hallelujah. Uh, The website for our show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the social media handles you can follow us at. And um, I was at my support group meeting uh, tonight. I'm recording at night. I've decided I'm going to record at night now because it's just, uh, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's just, I don't know, just cozier. I think cozy makes for a good podcast. Feeling very cozy. Would somebody get me some cocoa? Does it get any cozier than cocoa? Maybe a little, couple marshmallows on it. I would not want that right now because it is 9.30 at night and it's about 90 degrees. And I don't know why I just opened the window thinking that it would be cooler. It's not. I'm roasting my balls off. Sorry for that image. So essentially, we've gone from cozy to downhill in a minute and 32 seconds. Let's celebrate that. Hmm? Let's put on our little party hats and say bon voyage, Paul. Any hope you had for this to be a good intro is at at sailed the port a little while ago. Gracie, if you would, please make more noise. I came from, uh, as I said, my support group meeting uh, wrapped up about an hour ago, and we were talking about that certain themes will kind of present themselves in support group meetings. Somebody will share about something, and then somebody else will kind of pick it up, and then everybody shares about it. And we were talking about getting sober and then reconnecting with family and family kind of for some people, allowing them back into their 
end of their lives. In fact, there's a joke that makes me laugh. What's the difference between a drug addict and a dog? When you let the dog back in the house, it stops whining. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people in the, in the group were sharing about reconnecting with their family and their family trusting them again. And um, I remember, I guess it, I would have been sober about three years. It was 2006, and my dad was uh, uh, dying of cancer. Yeah, Paul, start off with a nice, funny story. Um, but we had this really nice, special moment where, um, as sad as it was that my dad had cancer, he and I had this moment alone. Uh, he was in his hospital bed, and um, and I thought, I'm going to take this moment to say something that I that I. I don't want this moment to pass. I don't want my dad to, to pass away and, and think to myself, oh, I wish I would have said this or I wish I would have said that. And so I said, um, Dad, I just want to thank you for the things that you've given me in life. You know, not even just the, the material things, but by example, some of the things that you did. You gave me the example of, living below your means and not being one of those people that spends money that they don't have and then is running around stressed. Uh, and I think that was the only thing I could think of to thank him for. <laughs> and then I put a pillow over his face and uh, I've never been arrested. But um, it's just an amazing... and and. Here's the whole point of the, the thing was after I listed the things that I was grateful for, um, my dad said, because I'd been sober now about three months or three years, and he said, you know, I used to worry about you, but I don't worry about you anymore. And it was such a beautiful moment to um, to know that my dad wasn't, I had no idea that he was worried about me. Um, but I think a lot of parents do when their kids are struggling with drugs or alcohol or, you know, whatever, whatever their, uh, addiction or compulsions are. Um, I just felt really good. And to anybody who's, who's listening, uh, if you're estranged from your family and you don't want it to be that way, because some of you are estranged, you know, I'm estranged from my mom and it's my choice. Um, if you want it to be different, uh, it can be different. It can be different if, uh, if we focus on changing our, ourselves, not to be something that somebody else wants, but to be the person that we want to be. <laughs> As the joke goes, uh, I just want to be the, the man that my dog thinks I am. Anyway, I digress, and let's uh, let's get to some surveys. This is uh, from the Ask Paul Anything survey, uh, and Depressed Anti-Gravity asks, if I remember correctly, one of the medications you take is Adderall. Due to your long history of addiction, were you or are you ever still concerned that you might abuse or become addicted to Adderall? Um, I was, I, I no longer take Adderall, and that's just because of a blood pressure. It jacked my blood pressure up, but I did not um, ever get to a place where I wanted to uh, abuse it, and it did help with my depression. 
So, um, yeah, I was kind of sad to have to go off it because it was probably another year of kind of struggling to find another cocktail of, of meds that work for me. But I feel like I'm in a good place now, and it's a nice place to be. Those of you that have struggled with trying different medications, uh, ooh, it, it is a lot of trial and error and requires a tremendous, tremendous amount of ex, uh, patience and lowering expectations. This is from the Fears survey filled out by Winter Laurel. Oh, and before I forget, uh, I think I mentioned last week, I'm coming to Minneapolis on uh, Friday, May 20th, and we're going to do a live recording of the podcast at Sisyphus Brewery. And uh, we don't have a link to buy tickets yet, but when we do, I'll, uh, I'll let you know what that is. So uh, these are some fears from the survey. Uh, some fears filled out uh by a person who calls himself Winter Laurel. And they write, I feel afraid of allowing myself to be myself. That is a fucking deep one. I think so many of us feel like if I was really the real me, unapologetically, nobody would love me. Uh, I feel afraid of getting hurt. I feel afraid that I don't deserve to be happy, loved, and accepting for being my accepted for being myself. Or this next one. Ooh, I feel afraid that life is now passing me by. That is such an insidious one, and it feels so real. It feels so real, especially if we had one of those days where we didn't get anything done. I feel afraid that I will lose my sex drive because of menopause, which I am also afraid of. I feel afraid, uh, they write, which I am also afraid of. I'm not so much afraid of uh, menopause. I'm pretty confident that I'm going to get through it. I feel afraid that I will never have the wild sex life I've always wanted. I feel afraid that I will never have a romantic relationship last longer than a few months. I feel afraid to accept myself. I don't know why. I feel afraid that I won't achieve my goals, and even those feel undefined. What do I want? I'd at least like to be happy. I feel afraid to show or express anger or engage in conflict because I often feel like I'm always in the wrong, even when I am not, and that people react to, will react to me in a negative manner like they have before. I feel afraid that I will never lose weight and feel comfortable in my own skin, and I hate how much I hate shopping for clothes. I feel afraid that I will never change my bad habits for good ones. And I feel afraid that I will never learn to love myself. Those are heavy. Thank you for, I mean, fuck, three quarters of life's inner challenge, you just laid down in that, in that list of fears. And so much of it comes back to that perception of ourselves. Uh, and speaking of that, I uh, created a new survey. I don't think anybody's filled it out yet, but um, somebody had suggested a, a survey about the voice in our head that talks to us, uh, what it tells us about ourselves. So fill that out if you're feeling so inclined. Um, this is from The Vault, a, uh, an awful moment from a while back, but it's, uh, it's one that makes me chuckle and is filled out by Lynn's. And she writes, 
with today being the anniversary of 9-11, I was reflecting on where I was when the planes hit 13 years ago. I was a junior in high school, and I was at home with my mom getting ready for school and work. We always watched the Today Show, so we saw the TV coverage from the first moment, and we were standing aghast when we watched the second plane hit in real time. The Today Show immediately started replaying the impact of the second plane. But in her shock, my mom thought each replay was a new plane. She was counting and becoming more hysterical with each replay. A third just hit, a fourth, a fifth, six planes. She got to seven before I started laughing and pointed out that it was the same plane. It was an awful event and a surreal day, but I always appreciated the quick movement, the quick moment that she gave us to step back from the intensity. I usually feel like an awful person for having a small chuckle over such a horrific event. So thanks for at least giving this sentiment a cool name. He was talking about the name Awfulsome, which we came up with for things that were awful at the time and uh, or still are awful, but there's a, just a tiny bit of awesome in there. This is uh, also from the Fear Survey filled out by Mr. Avocado Man, and he writes, I will write this partly in the past tense when my mental health and CPTSD were at their worst. I survived many years living with the fear that people would find out that I had a sexual desire. I know it's pretty unusual for a human being to like sex, right? Ironically, this fear had nothing to do with religion. When I was a kid, my dad was falsely accused of sexual misconduct, later proven innocent by admission, and lost everything. On top of that, my mom taught me to believe that sex was the ultimate source of shame. Well, if it's done correctly. If she saw me... If she saw that I had looked at porn on the family computer, she would gather the family together, pull up everything that I had looked at, and ask me about each thing. I felt like if people knew I liked sex, porn, and all that jazz, that it would ruin my life forever. What made it so much worse is that I have always had a very strong libido. I genuinely thought I would lose my entire life. All my loved ones would abandon me, and I would be a failure indefinitely. This fear created an internal feedback loop where my trauma brought shame and I would seek sexual gratification as an escape from the shame. It peaked when I would anonymously message strangers online uh, to sext and send nudes back and forth with those people. I could be a nobody with other consenting adult nobodies. Then the fear came true. Not only did someone find out about it, but it was someone at my job. I had my first mental breakdown in a long time. I couldn't eat, sleep, anything for days. All I could think about was suicide. The house flooded the same weekend. The weekend before an international business, business trip. It was wonderful, truly. But I am so grateful that it happened because facing my fear in that apocalyptic moment inspired me to get help. Three years into constant therapy, and I have untangled many knots, slayed many demons I didn't even know I had, and learned how to use my innate mental tools to grow and reprogram my mind for love and acceptance. Uh, it has been two years since I last thought about suicide, and I now post full-body nudes with my face on adult social networks, and it feels good to finally be free. 
Now I can happily say that I am afraid of nothing except wasps. Fuck those things. That sounds like you're, you're getting no, I mean, that is so traumatizing. Somebody shaming you about sex, especially when you're a kid or an adolescent man, that the imprint that that leaves is so heavy, so heavy. We are sponsored this week, uh, as always, by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, My therapist, Heidi, will sometimes send me articles or stuff for me to read. And one of the things that she sent me a couple of weeks ago was a list of codependency warning signs. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to read this on the podcast. Uh, By the way, I... (laughs) I'll let you know the ones that I checked. Uh, Low emotional expressivity, check. Having a hard time saying no, check. Having poor boundaries, check. Feeling compelled to take care of people, check. Having a need to control, especially others, check. Having trouble communicating honestly, check. And I should say, historically, these are things that I'm checking. I feel like a, a lot of them are now kind of more under control. Fixating on mistakes, check. Still a problem. Feeling a need to be liked by everyone, uh, double check. Uh, Feeling a need to always be in a relationship. That's one of the few I did not check. Uh, Denying one's own needs, thoughts, and feelings, check. Having intimacy issues, check. Confusing love and pity, check. Displaying fear of abandonment, still a check. And difficulty making decisions, still a check. I just thought that was so helpful. I wanted to, uh, to read it to you guys. Uh, I've been using BetterHelp for for years, and um, it it just helps me with so many areas of my life, uh, as I think uh, therapy in general does when you connect with a with a good counselor. And uh, BetterHelp has a ton to choose from. Uh, BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. You guys get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash mental. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what is makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then uh, finally, this is 
An awfulsome moment filled out by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as Claire, and they write, My dad is a clinical sociopath and a doctor. He was a pill addict and pill dealer during my childhood and was largely absent, always emotionally and often physically. I have learned most of what I know about him through painful phone conversations with my mom. He's a real sicko, but so am I. The difference between us is that I have a conscience. The urge to compare myself to him always haunts me regardless, especially because my mom used to compare me to him with great disappointment and disgust. Recently, on the phone with my mom, she told me with sorrow and revulsion about something he did in med school. While performing an autopsy on a little boy, he took the brain out, set it on the table next to the boy's head, and took a Polaroid. Then, he would go around showing people, adding, This is why little Billy can't read. My mom could hardly choke this story out, adding at the end, What kind of a sick fuck thinks that's funny? Whenever she unburdens these stories to me, they are clearly emblematic of the misery and psychological torment she underwent for 11 years in their marriage. It feels like a knife in my heart every time to think about my sweet flower gardening, Winnie the Pooh loving mother being exposed to any depravity. The desecration of someone's dead baby boy for a laugh makes me sick too. The problem is, I also think it's pretty funny. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm I'm ashamed. ...a sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live... ...fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like, we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now. You just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about (laughs) making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Ah, you're in the right place. I'm here with my buddy, Chris Protopapa, who uh, we all on on our hockey team just know is limey. Hi there. (laughs) Uh, You're from what part of England? West London. West London. You've probably flown over my house if you've ever flown into London. I, well, then I have. There I have visited London a, a couple of times. Uh, Limey and I were uh, outside after one of our pickup games, and, and we were talking, as most hockey players do, about hockey. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's either, You're either talking about uh, who you're dating, how drunk somebody got, or hockey. It, I, it's very rarely. I, I think you've covered all of the main topics, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And you said hockey is my church. And I thought, wow, I, I really relate to that. And I know, I think I know what he is talking about. Um, talk, talk about what was kind of going on in your head when, when you said that hockey is your church. What's funny is I, I, I remember us having that conversation and it, it caused me to actually think about it afterwards because I'd never actually thought about it that way before. I sort of had the feeling of that. It felt that way. And then the, 
I said it in the right way that nailed it as I was talking to you. And it was more about that. That's the place you go for refuge. So um, one of the, the one of the things that I always notice whenever I play that it's a different thing for me than anywhere else I go is the very first step on the ice every time I get out there. I always make sure I make notice and I note in my head that feeling because it's the thing that made me fall in love with hockey. That feeling that is not like anything else. Skiing's close, sliding around, planks on your feet, right? But that feeling on the ice is something so different and it was transformative almost in a way that it made me love it and want to get better at it and the more you get better at it the more you realize you're reliant on other people and then you realize there's your congregation mm-hmm. there's the people that you talk to and more often than not in the locker room you'll end up talking about stuff you weren't expecting talking about mm-hmm. to people that you realize are closer to you than you noticed you were closer to and then those are the better friends you are with people the better you seem to play with them and then I noticed that a lot of the lessons that I'd learned on the ice or in the locker room about me or about my interaction with people translated directly outside of the rink as well with relationships with other people uh, for for instance I was discussing this the other day particularly with somebody about um, another hockey buddy and it's about how you you have to be in the moment of what you're doing you can't be focused elsewhere but you have to be aware that there are things around you going on that you need to pay attention to and it helped me when I was at work, if you're not particularly enjoying something or you're being frustrated by something, it, you can have your focus and your attention on it while being elsewhere, mentally, and thinking about things that, aren't, that are indirectly related that are helping you with the task that you're doing. Yeah. That's, you know, the thought that crossed my mind when you, is you know, the last couple of days when we were scheduling this recording and I knew that I wanted to talk about this. And I was thinking, um, what do I relate to that statement? Hockey is my church. And I, and I definitely do. And I think anybody who has a passion for something that is completely absorbing to them, and especially if there's a sense of community around it, you know, whether it's rock climbing or knitting or something like knitting, Pick the most solitary thing you can imagine. <laughs> well, knitting circles, maybe. But that that sense of community and and having to be uh, in the moment, or at least it's your goal, that that is is what rang uh, my bells uh, about that. You can, and that is also one of the other things. You can't, all of the things even that you think you're doing in a solitary capacity have a knock-on effect with those around you. And that's also one of the things. And I think once I, there's certain things that you, when you say them to yourself in your head, you you know it's right and you know it's true. And for better or worse, I'm a pragmatist. So if I have an idea, I have to explore it to the nth degree in my own mind before I'll let it go. It can, it gets you caught up sometimes and slows you down and gets you stuck in places you don't necessarily want to. But the upside is 
you really do have a grasp of a situation or an understanding and how all of the things that we do relate to other people and vice versa. It makes you, I think it's probably made me more respectful towards other people. And tangentially, um, when you are speaking to people, there is a tendency to talk to them over a fence, right? Mm -hmm. There's your perspective and you're relaying that to somebody else. And it made me have a conversation while I was standing on both sides of the fence, understanding what I was saying to them and how it would be received not just making sure I was understood. And then when they were talking to me, seeing how what they're meaning to say to me, not necessarily the words that they're saying. And I think that's something that most certainly was germinating on the ice because you can get frustrated with people. It is a litmus test of, of where you're at spiritually. Yeah. I, I find that. The more I'm in the, t the penalty box, the more I have to think about what's, going, what's really going on off the ice. Am I afraid of something? Am I afraid that I'm not going to get something or I'm going to lose something? Am I, you know, having a lot of negative self-talk? Totally unrelated uh, to hockey. The other thing I find is if I can genuinely find a part of myself that is happy for the team that beats us, I know I'm in a good place because I... I know the world is, everybody has their time in the sun when things go well, and everybody has their time in the sun, you know, or in the shade when it, when it's not going well. And sometimes we got to be in the shade for other people to experience the sun. And it's, it's so selfish to think that we're going to get to win every time. And if we don't somehow, you know, we're the receiver of bad fortune or you know what to take it personally mm -hmm. rather than just go oh look at the beautiful ebb and flow you know sometimes when we're getting smoked by another team i'll look up in the stands and see that you know maybe there's a, a girlfriend of a guy on the other team and i'll think you know maybe he hasn't scored a goal in forever and he gets to to go home with her and she's going to compliment him about the the goal that he scored and they're going to have a nice moment together rather than they're disrespecting me because they won by 10 goals and I'm a failure to my team and I made those four mistakes and now nobody likes me. I can relate to that, but I only can relate to that very recently. I, I am very competitive as most of us are that play and you want to win and that's your priority and how you're playing but you're absolutely right it's come to pass now that I realise the calmer I am in a better place I am I'm able to appreciate those things as well mm -hmm. it's again I'm a tangential person you know this one of the jobs the tasks I hate doing at home more than anything else is dishes I hate it never it was just driving me crazy doing it all the time until one day I was doing those dishes and I realized that it doesn't require my brain to be doing anything. So I was thinking about the things I wanted to think about. And now I actually really like doing dishes. Really? Yeah. Would you do mine? Yeah. How many you got? <laughs> you don't leave stuff on there. Sadly, they get crusty, do you? No. Okay, then we're good. I'll do them. Sadly, yeah. I did them before you came over. <laughs> and um, I think that's mm -hmm. just, it's, and it was just that tiny little shift that changed something from absolutely vehemently hated to enjoy. And the same thing with, as you're saying, with losing now isn't about my performance or or what I did wrong or contributed to that loss, the worst mm -hmm. of all things, right? Mm -hmm. That 
you do notice if somebody scores that doesn't score very often, you can tell by the reaction and you can't help but smile. Yeah. yeah. And it kind of makes it a good night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been there. I've, I felt like that. That's good. And again, it's, you know what? It's the two sides of the fence again. I can see it from their side. Uh, I can get on that. I can ride that wave with them a little bit. Yeah. It makes your day better. Yeah. You're still getting crushed, but right. you your day's a bit better from it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love the feeling of complimenting somebody on the other team for a goal they scored. I am always complimenting my teammates when they do something well, or even if they're just trying hard. It know? feels easier to do, doesn't it? Compliment your guys? Yeah. And it seems difficult to compliment the other guys? I'm in the habit now of, of if a guy in the other team scores a good goal, of stopping him after the handshake and saying, man, that was a great goal. That, that that you scored, I feel something spiritually in me yeah. because I'm not I'm not lying. It, it was a good goal that he scored. Yeah, in the in the moment that he scored it, I was pissed that the goal went in. But in the grand, I'm I'm able once the whistle final whistle blows, I'm able to see things in the grander the grander scheme of things. Uh, one of the things that you and I were talking about that night uh, in the in the parking lot after pickup was consideration for your teammates and it was something i discovered we both had a big problem with were i I suppose selfishness teammates that are selfish that aren't aren't considerate and you're you know one of the things that drew me to you was i like your attitude towards the game you never quit you play hard, you play fair, and, you know, he, here's one of the things that, that he and I were talking about was when somebody chooses to come off the ice, shows a lot about their character. If they come off the ice when your team needs them the most to be defending your goal, that tells you a lot about that person in my opinion that they don't really give a shit about whether or not you get scored on they just want to have their energy on the ice when you're down in the other team zone and they have a chance to score and get all the glory mm-hmm. and and we it was almost like we both celebrated this secret that that we had been harboring this secret resentment at at people that you know don't try hard on defense, one of the, one of the things that I love about playing with you is, you know, there's a phrase in hockey: he plays all 200 feet of the ice. Um, Chris plays forward, I play uh, defense, and it's very common, especially in beer leagues, that the forwards, when the puck, the other team gets the puck and they start heading towards your end, is that the forwards stop skating. And yeah, job's done, right? The, yes. The, the, the score goals. Right. Oh, we lost the puck. Yeah, now, we, deal with it, defenseman. I don't have a chance to get glory now. I don't want to put in the grunt work of having to expend energy without any chance at at glory. Mm-hmm. But you and Frank and a couple of other guys on our on our team, and I and I think it's really one of the things that that makes us uh, have a good game is you guys try like hell. You never give up. And you you skate all 200 feet of the ice. And that um, 
endears people to me in a way that, that it's hard to even put into words. Maybe it's because I'm a defenseman and we're so used to being abandoned by the forwards. <laughs> and then you have the front row seat to the, you know, the other team scoring a goal while, you know, you're flopping around trying to cover three guys at the same time. And it's just like, uh, it's such a feeling of abandonment and disrespect. Yeah, the closer you are to, to the pot going in your own net, the more personally you take it yes and i notice as you're saying that i'm thinking about it there it's less irritating to me if i'm back checking and i'm still at the red line halfway up the rink <laughs> and that's as fast as i could have got back the puck goes in that's really irritating if i'm right next to it oh, that's incredibly irritating as defenseman you're always right next to it right yeah i feel bad for goalies i used to be one it's tough gig yeah. but I'm, you're right i just want to go back to something that sure. you said with not putting in the effort because there's no chance of glory. Isn't that relevant in today's world? Yeah. Right? Nobody. I hadn't considered that, but you said it's very poignant. I thought it was worth revisiting. Right. I was about to say nobody wants to do the grunt work, but that's, uh, that's not fair. A lot of people don't want to do the grunt work. And I suppose in many things, I'm one of those people that doesn't want to do the grunt work. But nobody wants to do grunt work. That's right. fair. That's, a, I, that's, that's why it's okay called grunt work. Have. That's why it's called grunt work. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, I don't know. There, there is something about the greater goal. And maybe this sounds cheesy of being of service to your teammates by trying hard and doing the the best job that you that you can, putting in the effort and the consideration to do a line change when the you know when it's not in your end. I think. You're absolutely right. And that, again, that is one of the life lessons that I learned on my side that, that I took into life, which for me was, and it's, it has made my life exponentially better. I will say that there's some things, many things I do with my life to make my life so much harder. But one of the few things that I've done that I'm very happy that I did was you, if you do actually invest yourself in other people's victories you get to share in it and then you're pooling victories from multiple people rather than toiling away for only the victories you get you're doing yourself a disservice really is what i feel you can you get all the wins with everybody else enjoy them with everybody else right we've got this weird thing where if somebody else gains you're losing everything's a zero-sum game it's just such it's a cynical like that, way to go it? through life isn't it and lonely it's exhausting because we've all done it. I think we're sort of programmed. And you live in a major city. You're around a lot of people. I've had friends move to smaller cities and they notice there's a significant difference in how people interact with each other. That's one of those things I've noticed. Let's pool our victories. We live with 7 million other people in LA. Can you imagine if we're pooling our victories? 24-7 party parade, right? Yeah. We do get focused on the stuff that... I mean, it's human nature, isn't it? You focus on the things that need to, to get changed and need work and need effort. And if everything's going all right over there, we don't pay attention to it. But it can you can end up a loser a lot of the time on that. So, so where did you discover hockey? You didn't discover it in England, did you? No, my dad discovered it along with many other Angelinos when a, a gentleman by the name of Wayne Gretzky showed up in L.A. And were, was your were you living here with your dad when that happened? Oh uh, no, my dad was living here. Yeah. I was still living in England, and we used to come and visit every summer. And he saw this guy named Gretzky. He said, oh, this is pretty cool. So I said, oh, send me, send me some videotapes. He goes, oh, I'll send you the videotapes of the playoff games, which for those of you who don't know, it was incredibly bad luck on his part that in the mid-90s, 
the one year that the Kings made the playoffs and went a deep run and one game was one videotape and one videotape to convert from US to UK was about a hundred dollars. What's wow. that gotta be? Like five hundred bucks these days? Yeah. They dutifully recorded all of those playoff games and I got all of those sent to England and I wore out the tape. Uh, and so I started to pass up six weeks summer vacation in LA for two weeks in uh, at the Easter time so that I could catch hockey season and go to a Kings game. Got to go and see the Kings Calgary and the Kings Canucks at the Great Western Forum. And that was it. Done. Hooked. Because I ended up moving here in 96 for a year out between college and university and then let's be honest, you spend 12 months in Southern California. It's Especially in the winter, you're like, why am I moving back to yeah, the cold? Wild horses, are, you know, need to drag you away. So. Right, right. And that's how I, and then, uh, yeah, beach hockey uh, in the late night, in mid 90s, around about the same time. Uh, one of the pro NHL guys, Luke Robitaille, started skating on these newfangled things, rollerblade, four wheels in a line instead of quads, mm-hmm. the roller skates from the discos. And uh, they started playing with hockey sticks and then shooting into trash cans. And then all of a sudden, there was like 50 guys playing down there on the weekend, and that was it. I used to take a bus two hours from the valley to the beach oh and then two God. hours back. And was Luke one of the guys playing down there? Not by the time I was there, but he had okay. started it with one of his good friends, Steph Desjardins. Yes. And Steph still plays down there. Oh, wow. Still one of the best players down there as well. One of the things that I love about playing ball hockey into garbage cans is two things. One when you score a goal and it hits the back of the can and it makes that explosion sound. And the other one is when you score a goal from the side and it swirls, the ball swirls around the garbage can. Round and round and round and round. And then sometimes we'll zip out, causing multiple arguments. Was that in? Was that (laughs) not in? Part of the fun as well. Yeah. (laughs) So when did you start playing? Uh, So probably... Late 90s? Mid to late 90s. I started skating at that beach when I would come out in the summers. So you couldn't really skate much in England. Sidewalks are not the same. They do not work for rollerblades in line sets, mostly when I was here. Uh, But uh, that 96 when I moved here and I started playing at beach, then playing roller, then got into ice. And then any time I could be on a rink anywhere at any time, that's what I was doing. And and so how did you wind up with our group of guys uh he he just joined our team this this last season i think you had subbed for us occasionally here and there but you and i really only have started to get to know each other in the last year mm-hmm. i suppose we were aware of each other yeah this was all just an elaborate ruse for me to be able to get have a conversation with you because we had a pr- couple of really good conversations in the we locker did. room but you usually zip out yeah and i'm like oh, i could do you know, a couple of beers and a conversation with that fella so yeah this is what we're doing now. Have a couple yeah. of mics. Yeah. But I got to, I started playing, oh, Wayne. Wayne Bow, the, uh, an enigmatic fellow, if ever there was one, a unique specimen, uh, just a really good soul. Good, good soul. soul. And uh, I played hockey with him at the beach. Oh, okay. And then he invited me, uh, you know, to, when we got some skates in at pickup with Sean. Yeah. And then I, I met Sean, Sean, who runs runs the team. Is he technically the captain? He wears a C. Yeah. He organizes everything. He yes. does it all. Yeah. Basically his team, right? Yeah. Most organized one, that's for sure. Yes. Thank God for Sean. Yeah. Here's here's a Wayne story that I think will paint a, a picture of, uh, of, of Wayne. And I think I've shared this story with you, Chris. But uh, 
uh, one of the guys was telling a story about they were in a bar years ago and they happened to have some shopping bags with them and they loved the mugs at this bar. And so they stole two of them by just putting them in their shopping bag. And Wayne's question was, where'd you get the bag? Yeah, they, that, that's Wayne. That's Wayne in a nutshell. Just the things that Wayne is, is, wants to know the details of are baffling. You, you can have a conversation with Wayne for 10 minutes and you will roll a coaster between, I'm not entirely sure that he knows I'm here and he might be a genius. Yeah. He, he, he skirts between planes of existence and we're all just spending time with him to try and sh- have a little of his light shine yes. on us. <laughs> Wayne will play with his head so far up his ass and then score the most ridiculous goal that you've ever seen. Yeah. It's, it's, we, it's yeah. an on-off switch. but There is absolutely no dimmer. For, he either will have his back facing the person that he's trying to receive the puck from. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what are you, what are you you've been playing this yeah. game for so long. You, you know that. He's from fucking Edmonton. Yeah. yeah. I, exactly. That's a good example. He's Canadian from about far north Canada as you can get. And then other times he's electric and taking on every, all comers and skating around people and doing all those stuff. But what I love about Wayne as well is every goal he scores, he seems surprised by it. You know, <laughs> I never noticed that. He's just absolutely, he's, he's happy. He's surprised. Yeah. He loves it. He's excited. And then he's jazzed like anything else. And again, if you, if you can't be in a good mood around Wayne, yeah, you got problems. You can't be in a good mood. Yeah. <laughs> So what? Grow, let, let's just talk about growing up. Uh, what were things like for for you? You grew up in in West London. What was kind of give me any moments that you can think of offhand that are kind of emblematic of what your childhood was like, or just moments that had an impact on you, positive or negative? There were. It was by the time I was eleven, I'd moved ten times, so we were kind of bouncing around. Um, my dad had moved here in the early 80s with an idea that we were going to move here. We tried a couple of times, ended up going to school for a semester just down the street. Um, and then we went back home and I spent a lot of time with my grandmother as well and extended family. And actually, given that I'm starting my own family now, I'm realizing how much of how overwhelming it can be to start this process. So to know that you have people there that are going to support you. I'm having a much greater appreciation of that now. Yeah. Um, Chris's wife is four months pregnant. Yeah. She's doing a grand job of it as well. I couldn't yeah. carry this off. So I'm doing everything I can to help her. Um, so I think bouncing around a lot, it makes you very social. It allows you to pretty much get to talk to anybody. Um, one of the things I would say that was formative for me it started off not so pleasant, tried to make the lemonade out of, uh, out of lemons, was I was very close with a great aunt and great uncle of mine that I spent a lot of weekends with, uh, weekends with when I was a kid. And I happened to be over there when uh, my aunt passed away. And to see your uncle, somebody that you look up to, I was about 10 at the time, and somebody that you look up to that was at rock, as you do when you're that age, everybody that is older, they've absolutely got it together. And to, to see him emotionally fall apart for that period of time was very was very difficult and it was at that time where um we weren't really focused on mental health mental health was for people that would had severe disabilities rather than 
everybody has mental health that needs to be tended to. And it was, as a young person, trying to deal with that without any... I would say professional support. I got a lot of support from my family, but how much do any of us know of how to help a kid at that age? And that sort of sort of changed me from what I was described as a happy-go-lucky kid to a bit serious and a, carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. And that sort of that lasted. I mean, honestly, it lasted till I was about twenty-seven. And I think I. At 20, you know what it was? At 27, I, I thought, I just wanted to know why it was. Why does it always feel like this? Nobody else seems to be feeling like this. What is it? Why do I feel like this? What is it? What are the situations that come up that I feel more like this? When was the first time I started feeling like this? And just really spending a lot of time thinking about it, that I realised that it was something that long ago that it had started it. And once I... And when you say this, what feelings are you talking about? Depression, um, anxiety, grief, sadness. It was it was depression, and I think varying degrees it comes and it goes, and you think it might be seasonal like allergies, but you just don't know what is going to set that off. But physically, I think it's that static feeling of in your chest when you're anxious to get going for something and it's never happening, and that frustration and because you can't get it going, or it's just not the universe isn't complying. Whatever you're dealing with that day. Yeah. Whatever you're looking at, the filter is through a filter of frustration and feeling that you don't have the tools to do whatever you need to do to get it done. To feel, why am I feeling like nobody else seems to be bothering with this? But as we know now, fortunately, I'm very thankful to be, it seems weird to be saying it given everything that's gone on, living through the last 10 years is how much more of an appreciation and nuanced understanding we have of mental health and what that means and what the requirements are for each of us on a daily basis. And how it manifests, it manifests differently for everybody. It was just that for me, that I found that identifying where that came from was just, just that small thing was very freeing to a point that I realised that relief could be had and that it was going to require a lot of different stuff to go on. So I think that's probably what made me really very pragmatic over everything. Now I've probably got that issue really that I need to work on, <laughs> not being able to not be pragmatic about anything. But... I think I look back and I enjoy my childhood. I'm thankful for it. There's lots of little things that happened that were good. There's lots of things that happened that were sad, just like everybody. But if with that one particular thing, it made me start viewing life through that filter. And that it's almost like, you know, like there's the clear colored sheets of plastic. Mm hmm. And then you hold them up in front of your face, everything's going to be rose or everything's going to be blue or everything's going to be whatever that is, right? You're still seeing all the same thing everybody else is, but it's through that filter. And everything that comes to you comes through that filter. And being able to cock your head around the side of it and see what the comparison is. Once you know what you're looking for, it's easier to find it. But when you're in the middle of it all, you don't know which direction to go to get out of whatever you're in. You just know what you don't want. Yeah, and your life becomes about what you don't want. The weird thing is, and I, again, tangential, I was talking to my wife recently about this, that, and somebody else, one of our one of our good circles of friends is really struggling with depression at the moment, and it was about um, uh, 
Um, how do you describe it? I get careful with my words and sometimes to a standstill. Join the club. Yeah. Particularly, as we were saying, over the last year or two. Mm-hmm. Tip of my tongue is happens more regularly. I'll have to leave that one, come back to you on that one. I, I lost a, I get very specific on my trainer, so I apologize for that. Okay, that's all right. That's all right. What are some of the things that you battle today that are kind of the day-to-day, not necessarily the external things, although that's fine if you want to share those, but the internal things, you know, negative self-talk, mm. uh, depression, anxiety, lack of motivation, yeah, again, I think it's all of the stuff that everybody deals with, but it's just how you how you 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 view it. Um, and so, you know, daily, I'm realizing over the last, I've been saying this is the last couple of years is none of us are going to realize the impact of all of the stuff that's gone on until you're out of it and you've got perspective. Mm-hmm. But as we start to come out of it now, it feels like we're starting to come out of it now. I'm starting to get a bit of perspective and I'm just, I'm starting to realize how much anxiety I've been carrying around on a daily basis. And it manifests for me that everything seems overwhelming. Any job, anything, anything that I'm not doing right now, it's overwhelming to have to add that to the list of things I need to do. Once I start going, I'm okay. And interestingly, I was hearing recently uh, it, it may be an old idea, but it, it came up recently, was um, that motivation, it was a study that I was, that I was hearing about, uh, that motivation comes after you begin. And I've and that resonated with me particularly because I felt like there was always something, particularly in life, that I would be able to contribute and I would be proud of, so I waited for that to show up. Keep yourself open, keep yourself ready, and it will show up. And when I heard that recently, I realized that, and again, this is going to seem so obvious to those people that don't look through this filter, that you're like, yeah, that makes sense, that's what I did, that to, to think that you have to start moving in a direction before you get the motivation, and then once you get the motivation, you're going to realize whether you're going in the right direction. And you can pivot. It always felt like a direction was a cul-de-sac that you've wasted time on if you didn't complete it. So don't start with all of that energy unless you're willing to complete it. I'm starting to realize, I'm starting to learn flexibility of thought, which is an incredibly difficult thing for me to learn. As I said, Mm -hmm. pragmatism, and I can't stop doing it. So I'm trying to balance that stuff out. You know, I think if you're around long enough and maybe you have a couple of career changes, you realize that very few things are a waste of time. And so much of life is a process of eliminating what it is that you suddenly realize isn't important to you. And, you know, there's a a saying in recovery that the road gets narrower. And I I didn't understand that for the longest time. And then after being sober now for 18 years, I've had to let go of a lot of things to try to find an inner peace in myself so I don't start drinking again or doing drugs. And I discovered that who I wanted to be wasn't going to be a a journey of adding things 
to myself. It was going to be a journey of letting go of the things that I thought I had to be, that I had to have everybody like me, or that I had to achieve some type of success. Uh, because for me to be one of many was to lose. And now I realize being one of many is where it's at. That's where the community is. That's where, that's, that's, that's where I find the peace and the, the church, wherever it may be, whether it's on a rink or it's in one of my support group meetings, you know, or just having coffee with a person or a a group of people, but that, that vulnerability and that honesty, uh, is led the way. It's almost, it's almost like making the decision to try to live an honest life, the attempt to live an honest life, because I haven't always done it, but the seeking to me opened everything else up. And then it, it kind of, it, the thing that you were waiting for to be right in front of you could only come because you were seeking, you know, what's that thing they say that when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. Yeah. And it, I mean, you're right. I found that all of the things I've, the most important things I've learned, I've learned while trying to get to another destination that I was frustrated that I wasn't there yet. I'm working on something and then you get a realization. And once that resolves itself, you look back and realize that all of the important stuff were actually as you were getting there. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> you were talking about that honesty. I one of the things that actually this had unintended consequences, much a lot of positive unintended consequences was I have a really great friend of mine, her name is Susie, and she will she's super smart, really on top of everything, very organized, knows what she wants, really funny person as well. And she will sometimes just do incredibly boneheaded things that you would not think this woman is capable of but she's the first one to tell you the stories you don't find out from anybody else she's not embarrassed by it she'll right. t- you'll never guess what i did first thing i, I love Susie, people like going? that i love people like that and i realize i i would do that sometimes and just by being friends with her and being around just one other person that did that i realized that uh, that it's a lot easier. As a kid, I would lie nonstop for no no reason, even no benefit. It was just information was a currency. Keep it close to your chest. Mm-hmm. Why I ever thought I don't know the, the musings of a of a you know infantile mind, but I started to do the same thing. But on everything, I would call myself out on everything to everybody all the time because if you can't get a, laugh out the thing the stupid things you've done you can't expect anybody else right right and you the unintended consequence i was talking about is that in the once you start doing it regularly in the moment that you're about to make a decision you weigh up how this could go and you realize that this could go incredibly badly and you could look really stupid now make the decision do you really want to do this it it's really helpful with decision-making processes when you can't make a decision. When you're vacillating, think about that. You'll easily come up with the answer. And sometimes I'll do the thing that will make me look the biggest donkey of all because I know it's going to be a funny story later and somebody else is going to get a kick out of it. Yeah. 
prostrate yourself on the altar of comedy. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap up? Uh, I think we've done a pretty covering of a lot of things. I keep talking yeah. to you for much longer, but we'll save it. Uh, buddy, I'm so glad that our, our paths have crossed and we get to, to play uh, hockey together and, and shoot the shit. And uh, you're, a, you're a kindred spirit. Thanks for coming by. Then I do want to talk about one more thing. What's that? That, as I said about Susie, there's just you just need to meet one person mm-hmm. that that sort of opens you up a bit mm-hmm. and it's exponentially helpful just that one first step you are one of those people and you you can see it when you you bonehead got the time wrong for a hockey game <laughs> the other week yeah. thinking it was an entirely different time now, bearing in mind, it's herding cats getting guys into a locker room and showing up for games. Yeah. There's one guy that always shows up. So when you get everybody else and you're the guy that misses, yeah. your presence is keenly felt, is keenly missed. Yeah. But the uh, as much as it is a good vibe in the locker room on that team, which is one of the reasons that I love playing, it's it's noticeable when you're not in a room. And I think we need to let people know when they're doing things right. And we're quick to tell people when they're not doing things yeah. right. And I very much appreciate you being in the locker room and inviting me here just to talk to you again. I just came because I wanted to talk to you. Yeah. You're that guy that people want to talk to. So oh, I appreciate buddy. the invitation. That means a lot to me, buddy. Love, love me some limey. Um, there's something was fucked up about those microphones. I, I'm not sure. I, I bought new microphones and uh, I don't know, maybe I put the wrong setting on them or something. But it sounded like there was more kind of echo in that room than than normal. I'm going to get to the bottom of that, but first I'm going to buy one of those Sherlock Holmes hats and a magnifying glass and a pipe. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, I got too stressed trying to come up with a name. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, I've been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, She doesn't uh, elaborate. Uh, She's not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused darkest secrets 
After reaching 68 68 days clean from bulimia, I just threw up in a public restroom on the beach. It was so violent and loud that I think I freaked out the homeless junkies who were hanging around the bathrooms. Today I realize that I've failed at everything and have become a disappointment to everyone who knows me and am a terrible, selfish friend. It all hit me at once in a sudden wave. Hey, I guess it kind of sounds like a panic attack. I didn't know what to do, so I went to the kitchen and ate all my food and all of my roommates' food. Maybe I cannot conquer this eating disorder alone. Maybe I need real help. And maybe I need to tell somebody that I cry more than I talk and I lie more than I tell the truth. My shiny, bright exterior does not make up for the brokenness I feel. I think I want to live. I think I want to a real relationship built on truth. God, I hope throwing up in this public bathroom surrounded by junkies is my rock bottom. I think I'm going to start digging myself out. Wow. That is... That is so profound. I'm speechless. I'm speechless. That that That's like an entire... support group meeting in one paragraph um um i'm so sorry that that you had to go through that but i'm so happy that you got through that and that it changed your perspective that you know in our support groups we call that the gift of desperation and uh Yeah, if you're if you filled that out and you're listening, uh, give us an update. I'd like to know how you're doing. This is also from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman uh, who calls herself Xanax E T O H Weed Still Not Numb. No fucking idea what any of that means except for Xanax. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 30s. Was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment ever been the victim of sexual abuse some stuff happened but i don't know if it counts the memories are so vague so it's hard to know how and when it started some touching my younger female cousin initiated by me and i feel deep shame every time i see her also i remember asking my mentally ill uncle to rub my clit because i liked how it felt i'm pretty sure i initiated that as well the second he asked me to touch him it stopped I feel like a total predator, exclamation point. She's been physically and emotionally abused, uh, mostly by men I have dated, but I am also an abuser. Uh, Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, I deeply love the men that abused me. I had a child with one, and I am currently married to the other. Darkest thoughts. I'm terrified of my spouse cheating, but secretly want to watch him fuck someone else to see if it evokes total rage or sets me free. When I masturbate, that thought makes me come. Uh, and that's that's pretty common. I've heard more than a few uh, friends of mine share that that is a turn-on uh, for them, that fantasizing about that, even though in real life they are jealous of the thought of that happening. Uh, oh, human brain. What are your uh, darkest secrets? I had a friend who always accused me of sleeping with her man because we lived in the same building 
because I was with him first. Uh, she always did love my leftovers. After her badgering me, I walked down to his apartment, gave him a lap dance and a blowjob, and then took $100 from him. I laughed to myself every time I saw her after. Needless to say, we are not friends anymore. Another time in my 20s, I had to have an abortion. Alone and scared, I went to the bar strictly to hook up. Did I mention I had the abortion that morning? My friend and I both brought a guy back to her place. I tried to go down on him, but he wanted to fuck. Totally intoxicated, I cried, saying, I just had an abortion this morning, and I can't have sex. He pushed me off of him onto my back. I was already on my knees, LOL, and said, you're nasty. I collected myself and walked out of the room to find my friend fucking both of them. To add insult to injury, we all frequent the same bar, and he told everyone about it. Sexual fantasies, most powerful to you. I want to watch my husband fuck another woman way hotter than me. I want to see how hard he comes. It makes me feel terrible and confused because it's one of my biggest fears. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my husband... If you love me, why do you keep hurting me? I literally, I am literally screaming out for your love. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace. My family to be okay. Not to fuck up my son, but most of all, to stop the radio scanner in my head. In uh, in our support group, we call that K-Fuck Radio. Yeah, anybody who relates to that, please go fill out the voice in uh, my head survey. Have you shared these things with others all the time? I'm just told that I'm crazy and need help by my mother and husband, and then they tell their friends. How do you feel after writing these things down? Relieved. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Be easy on yourself. Any comments? To make the podcast better, can I meet you and hug you because I literally belly laugh with your jokes when you are interviewing, often thinking, how did they not laugh at that, LOL? Well, that makes me feel very good. Thank you. Um, You know, uh, have you shared these things with others? You know, you said that your mom just tells you you're crazy and your husband then just tells uh, your friends, um, you are worthy of friends who love you who you can trust and you who you can confide in and uh it sounds like you don't have that with your mom or with your husband and you know we go around once in life why not try to get the best friends possible i've done it i have fucking amazing friends amazing friends but it took work to find them I had to bottom out on drugs and alcohol <laughs> to find them, but they're my people. They're my fucking people. And they changed my life. And you can too. This is a happy moment filled out by Butterball, who identifies as a gender, and they write, I'm sitting in my computer, slightly sweaty, after finally cleaning my apartment. The dishes and floor floor drobe <laughs> clothes on the floor had built up quite a bit since it's been a busy couple of weeks. I'm learning not to beat myself up when I don't have time to clean, to acknowledge that I'm tired rather than inherently lazy. And cleaning has become more joyful because of this. 
It's not Catholic-style penance anymore, but a gesture of care for myself and my space. I've gotten into a pattern of using Saturday mornings to listen to the new Metal Pod episode while I sleep, sweep, and hum to myself. The podcast feels like a friend sitting in my home telling me about their life while I clean. Today, the rare Chicago sun is shining through my windows. My hands smell like basil from tidying the house plants, and the day is still young. I'm okay. I have time. Wow. So beautiful. So beautiful. Ah, just love it. Love it. Did I say I love it? I love it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself the monster's ghost. He identifies as straight. He's 30 years old. Says he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, He writes, yes, and I never reported it. When I was around 11 or 12, I was staying the night at a friend's. Everyone was in bed, two brothers in a bunk bed, and myself on a mattress on the floor. Their older brother, pretty sure he was 17 or 18, across the hall. A little time had gone on, and the older brother popped his head in the room, asked who was awake, and I let him know that I was. He came over and sat down next to me, and we talked for a while. He laid down on the mattress, and somehow the conversation came to sex and being gay. I don't remember how it started, but he started fondling me. Not knowing any better, I began fondling him. After this happened, it would happen more often, any time I would come over to hang out with my friends. I would find myself with him locked in his room. This wasn't against my will. He would fondle and master. We would fondle and masturbate each other. Well, I'm just going to pause right there. Um, at 11 or 12, and yes, he was a child in that he was 17, uh, you know, or 18, at least to older adults. They, that seems like a child. Uh, but you were 11 or 12, and that is an abuse of power. And he knew better. And um, it can't be consensual. That that big of an age difference um i'm sorry but that i hope it doesn't sound like i'm trying to to change your reality i just had to weigh weigh in on that um we would fondle and masturbate each other i would get the tingle and he would pull out a cardboard box he kept under his bed and would come in it then we would just go back to our day like it never happened then it just kind of stopped but i didn't I started hanging out with a boy my age, 14 or 15 by now. We would usually just hang out and play video games or play outside. Again, I don't really recall how it started, but the friend and I would perform oral sex on each other once in a public diner. Uh, The classic, oh, I dropped my spoon. He went under and gave me oral. Our waitress came and took my order, and that was that. We later went to his house and straight to his room where we had sex. I would later lose my virginity to a girl in his basement while he was in the next room. He's also been physically abused. Uh, Drunk dad, drunk stepdads. Dad would beat me up when he would come home from work. It didn't happen all the time. My dad just sometimes... Uh, could control his drunk self or his drunk rage. As far as drunk stepdads, I have a thing for running my mouth to a shitty authority figure, and it would either turn to a fight or him running to his gun closet where he would go get high and calm down. That's not how I thought that was going to turn. He went to to his gun closet in a fit of rage and calmed down. 
uh, any positive experiences. I was distant with my dad for a while, but we talk every now and then. Darkest thoughts. Suicide, but there's more of an intrusive thought that kicks in here and there. For example, say I'm driving with my son in the back and I get to a red light. The thought of when the light turns green and I go, the person at the red light is just going to keep going and smash into my car. I turn and my son is dead and the next thought is, would I kill myself there or later? It's just thoughts. My brain just processes the worst case scenario and runs with it. Darkest secrets. Masturbate at work. Tried to cheat on my girlfriend on multiple occasions. Tried. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. More than one partner. The thought of wanting to pick up a small-sized lady uh, and put her on my shoulders and put her against the wall to give her oral is a go-to thought. Usually makes me eager and sometimes careless. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Tell my girlfriend about my sexual hungers and how it's having a negative effect on the relationship because it's frustrating. I'm the only one who initiates sex. She doesn't even try to put out a hint. What, if anything, do you wish for? To be able to see my son grow up to be happy. Have you shared these things with others? The fondling. I didn't tell anyone until I was over 18. People were dumbfounded, said they thought I was acting different around that age. How do you feel after writing these things down? The same. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Keep your eyes on the prize. Thank you for, uh, thank you for filling that out. I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to do that. And I... I hope you and your uh, your girlfriend can find a way to start to uh, communicate better. It's it's fucking hard, man. When when that template isn't shown to you as a kid or a teenager, it's like who? How do we learn to have difficult, intimate, vulnerable conversations if we haven't seen it modeled? This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Radiohead is my religion. Well, then I'm also a follower. Fucking love Radiohead. Uh, She identifies as straight, uh, but possibly bisexual. Haven't had any girl-on-girl experiences, though, but I would be open to it. She is in her 20s, says she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I was at a party the summer after graduating high school, and many of my classmates were there. I had too much to drink, as did everyone else, and at the end of the night, we all slept on the floor next to each other. A guy I had been on and off with was there and slept next to me. We had been passively passive-aggressively fighting a bit that night because he was jealous of me, quote, flirting, unquote, with other guys. When we all decided to go to sleep for the night, he started getting handsy with me. I was drunk, but not blackout drunk. I could tell he was trying to take advantage of me in my intoxicated state. This next part makes me feel shameful and disgusting. I decided to, quote, do an experiment, unquote, and pretend that I was passed out and see how far he would go thinking I was passed out. As I lay there pretending to be passed out, he started unbuttoning my pants and put his hand down there to start touching me. He would whisper in my ear, asking if I was awake or not. 
I continued to pretend I was passed out, and he continued to touch me, thinking I wasn't conscious. After he was down my pants for a few seconds, I rolled over on my side to cut off access. To me, the test was over, and he failed. He then asked again if I was awake or not. He tried once more, once more to gain access down there, but he couldn't get to it. I was mortified that the guy I was into at one point would take advantage of me in that kind of state. Even though I was completely aware of what I was doing and what I was letting him do, I was still mortified that someone could do that to someone else when they are actually in that state. I felt a lot of guilt and shame on myself, though, for letting him do it and, quote, testing him without him knowing. I know I shouldn't feel guilty because, for all he knows, I was passed out drunk and couldn't consent. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. I was bullied all throughout my life by family, friends, and other kids in school. It's hard to narrow it down to one or two instances, but one that sticks in my mind is being verbally attacked in school for talking or laughing. I have a very recognizable laugh. Uh, I got a most unique laugh in high school award. There were a group of boys that terrorized me, and any time I would answer a question in class, they would immediately mock me or tell me to shut up in front of the teacher who did nothing. If I laughed in the lunchroom, these boys would stand up and throw things at me and yell, shut up. I wasn't able to have a voice. Anytime I would present an idea to a class or ask a question, I was bombarded with hate. This has left me self-conscious now as an adult. I constantly think people are annoyed by me and that I am a burden. A burden. Uh, darkest thoughts. I try really hard not to have deep, dark thoughts, but I tend to put myself in other people's shoes a lot. People who kill or rape people. I try and get into their heads to feel what they are feeling. Same with the victims. You sound like you're an empathetic person. Uh, darkest secrets. This is something I have never, never is capitalized, shared with anyone, which is also capitalized. But when I first discovered masturbation and the joys of orgasm at around 12 or 13, I let my dog at the time lick my pussy until I came. I have tremendous uh, shame surrounding this. First, because it's a dog for goodness sake. And second, I felt like I sexually ab abused the dog. You've heard me talk a lot, I'm sure, about how not of a big deal and how common that is for people discovering uh, sex. Uh, let's see. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Sex with a woman. I haven't experienced it yet, but I feel like it would be nice to touch another woman's body. I would like to put on a strap-on and see what the view is like from a man's perspective. It's pretty sweet. I also wish I could have a dick for a day. You know what? Let's start a national dick for a day. Uh, so I can feel what it would be like to have sex with one. To feel what it would be like to have a man's orgasm. Well, that's funny because I always think, man, what would it be like to to have sex as a woman and to be able to have multiple orgasms? I, uh, I'm, I think I would get greedy. <laughs> uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my abusers in high school, you have traumatized me in ways that continue to affect my life today. Actually, there should be some, some type of, uh, I don't know, program in high school, some type of awareness uh, because I, I think 
kids at that age, they may know what they're doing is wrong, but I don't think they ever stop because they're so young to think about how long lasting it might be for, for that person. What if anything you wish for? I wish everyone could just get along. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be fucking nice? How do you feel after writing these things down? I have so many other stories that I feel like I picked the wrong ones to put in this survey. My perfectionism and anxiety has prevented me from submitting this survey for the past few weeks. Well, you did an awesome job, and thank you. Thank you for doing it. I got a lot out of it. And then finally, uh, we're going we're gonna to end with the fear survey filled out by a woman who calls herself epileptic alcoholic. And she writes, uh, I fear having a seizure while taking a shower. I have an odd post-ictal, which means uh, after seizure, response. After I have a seizure, I run. My body goes into complete fight or flight response. I'm scared. It feels like I'm in a horror movie. I'll scream and cry and run as fast as I can until the panic slows. I'll feel like I've just run a, a marathon. The first seizure I ever had, I didn't even know I had a seizure. I was hungover and opening up the coffee shop I worked at. I was by myself, 6 a.m. and still dark out. Next thing I know, I'm at the grocery store across the highway, hyperventilating and trying to call my mom on one of the phones uh, only employees are supposed to use. It was 6 a.m. Of course she didn't answer. I started to come to and realized I needed to get back to the shop. I barely knew what was going on. I ran across the highway, tripped, and broke my foot. With all the adrenaline, I was able to run the rest of the way to work with a broken foot. My bosses were pissed when they showed up. There was nothing done, and I had a broken foot with no explanation of what happened. Uh, after I was shamed aggressively for the situation and had been jumping around on one foot for basically the whole shift, I went to the doctor, was given my boot, and told not to walk on it for a week. After that, I was able to walk with the boot but couldn't drive. I had to take the bus to work or rely on family. No one questioned what happened that morning. They just accepted I broke my foot and had no interest in figuring out what happened. Cut to months later, I have a seizure in front of my boyfriend. I tried to climb our fence to get... Let's see to get away from him. I still have a giant scar from that one. I was screaming and he had to hold me down. I came to on the front porch with an EMT in front of me, trying to get me to calm down. I went to the hospital and that's basically the story of my first two seizures. I've had many since then. I've woken up streets away, not knowing where I am. I've woken up uh, to being held down, sometimes by my sisters or my boyfriend or my mom or my stepdad. I'll hit them and scream to try and get out of their grip. But it's better than running and breaking another bone. So that's why my fear is having a seizure in the shower. I don't want to run out of my house naked. That, that could be an awful moment. Thank you for that. It, it amazes me the fucked up laughter that uh, I get out of the surveys that you guys fill out. Um, I think that's one of the things that I really love about doing this podcast is just finding that that little ray of 
goodness in the uh, in the pile of shit. It's uh, sometimes I think that's the best we can hope for. You know, does that sound too negative? On a bad day, though, it's it's um, trying to find the humor and the and the fucked upness is the thing that uh, makes it all better. And I think that's why I love support group meetings is because we find it all the time, at least in good meetings. I've been to some shitty support group meetings where it's just, oh my God, I would rather watch paint dry. But anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I hope I hope the podcast has improved uh, with me doing it again at, uh, at night. It feels better on, on my end, but what do I know? I'm a fucking nut job. So, uh, be good to yourselves. Be nice to yourself. You're uniquely positioned to be your own best friend. Why would you be your worst enemy? And never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.